Good afternoon. I'm Jim Dorn, uh, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you here for the uh, book forum for Larry White's new book on the clash of economic ideas, the great policy debates and experiments of the last 100 years. And we're also pleased to welcome uh, Sylvia Nasser, who is uh, going to comment on Larry's uh, book. And um, let me begin just with a, well, two things. First, uh, the book, The Clash of Economic Ideas, will be available outside after, after the forum, as well as Sylvia's uh, most recent book. Um, and there's a website that you can go to, uh, clashofeconomicideas.com, and this is primarily, it's got some videos, it's got, uh, you know, it can be used for courses that use the book and so forth, so you might want to check that out, especially if you're uh, teaching and uh, want to use it for, like, history of economic thought or something like that. The nice thing about the book is it's uh, widely available uh, to a, not just a professional technical audience, but to the uh, intelligent layperson. Uh, there's a few charts in it and maybe one or two equations, but it's a literary work. Larry's a very unusual economist. He knows how to write well. Uh, so he has a comparative advantage there. Uh, the book itself uh, looks at uh, 100 years is a long time. And, you know, he does a superb job of picking out key issues and then using uh, the doctrine of economics, uh, economic doctrine, uh, over a longer period of time to, you know, basically clarify and, and, and talk about uh, these ideas. Uh, the first principle of Japanese flower arranging, as you probably all know, is what to put in and what to leave out. Uh, and that's the task any researcher faces, and he, he's done a very good job of deciding what to put in and what to leave out. Uh, the flow is sort of events occur in the real world, and then we debate these events using economic ideas and leads to major policy experiments. Uh, and his central figures uh, are basically Keynes and Hayek. I mean, he talks about a lot of other people, but Keynes and Hayek uh, enter into the debates uh, very frequently and at a fundamental level. And really the fundamental issue, I, I've read just about all the book in the last couple of days. Um, and I found the fundamental issue really is the role of government in a free society uh, with a couple subheads, basically. Uh, plan versus the market, uh, which has been critical with respect to the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and, and the changes in China and India and so on. Principle of spontaneous order, which is a first principle in economics and goes back to classical uh, economic ideas with Adam Smith, uh, invisible hand, and the idea of coercion versus consent. You organize societies either a top-down or bottom-up through mutually beneficial exchanges and an emphasis on economic freedom. Uh, and the classical idea for economic development was one, one not of maximizing GDP or something like that. It was to increase the range of choice for individuals. That was something Peter Bauer spoke a lot about, and Larry really takes that approach in this book. Uh, and therefore, there's also a distinction between the rule of law or limited government and the rule of experts. Uh, and, of course, connected with that, the knowledge problem, the Hayekian knowledge problem. Uh, the impact of economic theory on policy, uh, as Larry points out in the book, 
really has uh, two sides. Uh, there's the cynics like George Stiegler that really doesn't think that economic theory informs policy much at all. That policy is driven by uh, self-interested politicians who want to get reelected, and they don't pay much attention to economic theory. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's a school, and I, I, this would, might be represented, although Larry didn't talk about him, uh, Bill Niskanen, our, our past chairman uh, of the Cato Institute, uh, who many of you knew. Uh, he always criticized Stiegler. Uh, Bill thought that uh, it was worthwhile to get involved in policy. That's what Cato does, it's a think tank. And it's informed by uh, economic uh, way of thinking. Uh, so Larry will talk about, probably talk about some of this uh, when he makes his presentation. Um, let me just give a brief introduction uh, for both Larry and Sylvia. Uh, Lawrence H. White is professor of economics at George Mason University. He previously taught at uh, New York University, the University of Georgia, and the University of Missouri at St. Louis, where he held the F.A. Hayek chair. Uh, in addition to his current book, uh, Larry is very well known for his work in monetary theory, uh, he, he's written The Theory of Monetary Institutions, Free Banking in Britain, and Competition in Currency. Uh, his articles on monetary theory and banking history have appeared in uh, the major journals, including the American Economic Review, Journal of Economic Literature, uh, Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking. Uh, he's co-author of Rutledge's uh, Foundations of the Market Economy, and also uh, he works as co-editor of the uh, Economic Journal Watch, which, which is an online economics journal. He's a member of the editorial board of the Review of Austrian Economics, and more importantly, the Cato Journal. Uh, he's been visiting professor at Queen's University Belfast, visiting fellow at the Australian National University, uh, visiting lecturer at the Swiss National Bank, and believe it or not, a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Uh, he's received in 2008 the Distinguished Scholar Award of the Association for Private Enterprise Education, and he holds a, a an uh, undergraduate degree in economics from Harvard, and he earned his uh, MA and PhD in economics at UCLA. Uh, Sylvia Nasser, uh, as many of you know, is the author of A Beautiful Mind about John Nash, which was made into a uh, Academy Award-winning film, and I hope she got some nice uh, honoraria for that. Uh, by the way, we we're having a capital campaign at Cato. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sylvia is the James S. and John L. Knight Professor of Business Journalism at Columbia University, where she also co-directs the master's program in business journalism. Uh, as I said, she's the author of the best-selling biography, A Beautiful Mind. Uh, it's been published in 30 languages and uh, inspired the Academy Award-winning movie. Her most recent book, which is available uh, today, uh, along with Larry's, is Grand Pursuit, The Story of Economic Genius, in which I'm featured. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, let's see. I wish. <laughs> uh, Sylvia has been a New York Times economics correspondent, staff writer at Fortune, and a columnist at U.S. News and World Report, and her work has appeared in numerous, uh, numerous publications. Uh, she is a recipient of many honors, including the National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography and was a final, finalist in the Pulitzer Prize uh, in Biography. Uh, she has been a visiting fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies uh, at Princeton and at King's uh, and Churchill College's Cambridge University, among other places. 
Nasser grew up in Germany and Turkey and holds a master's in economics from NYU. Please help me welcome both of the speakers today. Okay, thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, and thanks especially to Jim uh, and to Becky Shaw of Cato for helping to organize the event. Um, and to Jim for chairing it. And thanks to Sylvia for coming a long way uh, to point out to me what corrections need to be made in the second edition, uh, should it live so long. Uh, on the one hand, I hope she doesn't find anything substantively wrong with the book. On the other hand, if she has some serious ideological issues with it, then that's great because that just illustrates the theme of the book, that there's been a clash of economic ideas that uh, continues. So. My position is hedged, either way. Okay. Uh, no doubt most of you have seen the Hayek and Keynes rap videos, Fear the Boom and Bust, and uh, Battle of the Century. One way to think about my book is that it serves as a kind of handy reference companion uh, for understanding these videos. And I suggest this because those videos have something like three million hits. So if everybody who's seen them buys a copy, uh, you can do the math. Uh, more seriously, <laughs> this project began when I was assigned at the last minute, actually but two weeks before the semester began, to teach a course in the history of economic thought uh, when I was teaching at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. So I, I thank uh, Dave Rose, my chairman at that time, for that assignment. Uh, so I had really too little time to prepare an old-fashioned kind of history of economic thought course, you know, a rigorous course, <laughs> one that spans from Aristotle to the present. Uh, instead, I had the idea, kind of a desperate idea, that I could start each class meeting by showing my students uh, a short clip, maybe five or ten minutes, from the PBS documentary, The Commanding Heights, uh, which I had recently seen. And then I could spend the rest of the hour filling in the details and going off on whatever interesting tangents might occur to me. If you've seen the documentary, you know that the first volume of it deals with the ideological debates in the 20th century uh, in reaction to the economic experiments of the 20th century, the, uh, Bolshevism, fascism, move toward the free market after the war. And it pays a lot of attention to Keynes and Hayek. So I thought this was useful. Not only would showing these video clips kill some time, <laughs> it would also make Keynes and Hayek real to the students, because after all, now they're not just guys in books, but they're on TV. Uh, and, and incidentally, it would teach them some economic history, which is a virtue in its own right, but would also allow me to pad my lectures with material from my economic history course, which I've been teaching for several years. Uh, and then I would go more deeply into the economic ideas of the protagonists and the ideas behind policy experiments like the Bolshevik Revolution, like the New Deal. Uh, and somewhat to my surprise, I think the course actually turned out to be interesting. Maybe not for the students, but for me, teaching it, <laughs> I found it interesting. Uh, so I thought, well, why not turn this into a book, because this is not the way the history of economic thought has usually been approached. Uh, I have to admit that turning lecture notes into the book uh, was a lot more work than I bargained for. There were a lot of details to fill in, uh, 
there were a lot of interesting tangents to pursue. But you can still see kind of the outline of the commanding heights kind of lurking in the background. So in many respects, this uh, book is a history of economic thought. I, I like to think that it's, it's uh, more than that. Uh, or it's an atypical history of economic thought uh, because it only covers the good parts. That is, it only covers the parts that are relevant for economic policymaking, uh, the economic theory, the empirical work, and the economic philosophy, you might say. It doesn't cover the most esoteric mathematical developments at the technical cutting edge of the discipline. Uh, it has a point of view. Uh, it's not completely neutral, but I, I like to think it's at least respectful to the people whose ideas I think turned out not to be so fruitful. Um, but really, that doesn't make it different because every history of economic thought has some point of view, whether it's overt or uh, implicit. Uh, as Jim indicated, I try to frame each chapter with historical events, either uh, events to which economists are responding, like, say, the Great Depression, or policy experiments, uh, like the attempt to institute uh, communism in the Soviet Union, uh, and look into the substance of the debates about those issues and where the disagreements are, and try to bring, bring the theories into focus. So although I do talk about the personalities involved, Hayek and Keynes in particular, uh, more the focus is on the ideas uh, that the people, the, the disputants are arguing about. Uh, so how have these ideas influenced policy? How have they influenced institutional design? Uh, the, uh, the introduction to the book begins, the last hundred years have seen dramatic experiments in economic policy, and I go on the list, right, the obvious examples, Soviet communism, Italian fascism, German national socialism, the New Deal, Bretton Woods, the nationalization of industries in post-war Britain, uh, and so on. Uh, but I, I offer these as a framework for understanding what economists were actually arguing about. Uh, too often, especially in sort of chronological histories of economic thought, you get the idea that this economist is only responding to what the last economist said, and all the debate is taking place inside a classroom. It's all about what's on the blackboard. It's not about what's in the newspaper. I'm trying to bring the newspaper into it. So the central thesis of the book, as Jim indicated, is that ideas matter, uh, that behind the ebb and flow of economic policymaking, there lies a clash of economic ideas, and this is contrary to Stigler's view. It's contrary to Pareto's view, the same view that only interests matter. Uh, and I try to give examples that I think exemplify where ideas uh, played a bigger role than interests uh, in determining economic policymaking. For example, the New Deal. Uh, so I don't think that the policy debates are just epiphenomenal or you know, bubbles on the surface. Uh, now, along the way, of course, I don't just limit myself to the last 100 years. I have to go back into the history of economic thought to explain how the positions came to be what they became. So I go back to Adam Smith. I actually go a few people behind Adam Smith uh, to understand how the ideas originated. Uh, and so it's, the structure is a little different from the chronological structure uh, of, say, a book like Robert Heilbroner's The Worldly Philosophers, which is 
over the years been the best-selling textbook in the history of economic thought. Uh, so it's structured very differently from that, although I wouldn't mind, of course, if my book sold as well as Heilbronner's book, or if it became known as what the worldly philosophers would have been if it had been written by a non-socialist. Uh, within each chapter, then I'm, I'm flashing back to uh, earlier economists whose work is necessary to understand what's going on, and to defend this approach, which is, you might say, non-linear, uh, in the introduction, I actually quote Quentin Tarantino, uh, who told an interview, uh, quote, when I made Reservoir Dogs in Pulp Fiction, nonlinear, I was not just doing it to show what a clever boy I was. Those stories were better served dramatically to be done the way I did them. So having tried it with an intellectual uh, history, I think that sometimes the most vivid and effective, I hope, way of telling the story of an intellectual debate similarly involves these kinds of flashbacks. So I urge you not to uh, think of the book as chronologically scrambled or it's filled with detours. Instead, think of it as Tarantino-esque, <laughs> uh, only with more polite language and slightly less bloodshed. Uh, so I actually start each chapter with a vignette uh, related to the events or the personalities of that chapter. And Rather than try to review the entire history of economic thought, let me here uh, focus on these vignettes because I think it's the best hook I've got to make you want to buy the book. Although I'm slightly deterred by the fact that we have a master uh, economic storyteller uh, on the stage here. Uh, chapter one, which is entitled The Turn from Laissez-Faire, sets the stage by talking about uh, economists declining adherence, you might say, to the doctrine of laissez-faire uh, in the years before World War I, and to introduce two of the central characters. Uh, we begin with uh, Eng at England's uh, University of Cambridge in the fall of 1905, where a clever postgraduate mathematics student named John Maynard Keynes is taking his first course in economics. He's taking it from the famous economist, probably the most famous economist in the world at that point, Alfred Marshall. Uh, and Marshall was soon impressed with Keynes' abilities in economics, and so was Keynes. <laughs> uh, he wrote to a friend, I think I'm rather good at it. It's so easy and fascinating to master the principle of these things. And a week later, he wrote, Marshall is continually pestering me to turn professional economist, uh, which, of course, he did. Then we switched to uh, Hayek in 1914 uh, in an Austrian army encampment on the bank of the Piave River in northern Italy, where a lull in combat gives him uh, the opportunity to read some economics. Uh, and he opens his first economics texts, putting aside the socialist pamphlets he had read uh, in college. He later uh, reminisced about this, and Hayek wondered why these books hadn't given him a permanent distaste for economics, because they were dreadful Germanic uh, economics, very thin on theory and very heavy on irrelevant facts. Uh, but returning to the University of Vienna after the war, Hayek discovered the work of Karl Menger, the founder of the Aust so-called Austrian School of Economics. And that, he said, really got him hooked on economics. Uh, and from there, I segue into discussion of how Keynes and before Keynes, Marshall and Irving Fisher in the United States uh, had turned away from the doctrine of laissez-faire, had <coughs> emphasized gaps and omissions and shortcomings and places where the state could play a more active role. 
Uh, and uh, as a foil uh, for making this relevant, I use an op-ed, sorry, not, not an op-ed piece, a, a, an article written by Paul Krugman in which he claims that before Keynes, all economists subscribed to laissez-faire. <laughs> not true. There's always been a difference of opinion uh, within the economics profession, I mean, going back as far as uh, uh, Malthus and Ricardo. Uh, chapter 2 deals with the Bolshevik Revolution and the Socialist Calculation Debate, and I begin with a letter written by Lenin to the Bavarian uh, Soviets who had just seized power in Munich and declared a Bavarian Socialist Republic. I mean, this was news to me, but it, it, it emphasizes how widespread uh, Marxist ideas, revolutionary Marxist ideas were in Europe. It wasn't just limited to Russia. Uh, so Lenin, in this letter, offers them advice for consolidating power, but he doesn't offer any advice on how to run the economy. Uh, and that's revealing, I think. He had no advice to offer. He had a problem. The problem was that he wanted a Marxist economy, but Marx had not left any instructions. He had not left any blueprint. All he had left were kind of vague, visionary statements about how the economy would prosper once we abolish private property and put control of the economy in the hands of the collective, uh, but nothing about the principles under which the collective should make decisions. So segue to the debate among economists over socialist calculation, Mises and Hayek on one side against uh, Longa and Lerner and others uh, on the other side. Uh, probably the longest chapter in the book, but I think it's an important topic to get straight what the fundamental differences of opinion in economics are and have been. Uh, it's so long that uh, Perry Merling, who uh, reviewed the book on the INET website, thought that every chapter was an echo of the socialist calculation debate, which was certainly not my intention. Uh, I think there's a difference between the debate over whether central planning can work and the debate over whether Keynesian macroeconomics can work. Uh, anyway. Uh, chapter 3 deals with the Roaring Twenties and Austrian business cycle theory, which was sort of the leading business cycle theory before Keynes came along. Uh, Fisher was a famous Yale University economist who made a small fortune by inventing what was called the visible index system, uh, more commonly known as the Rolodex. And he had a company that produced it. He sold the company, was paid handsomely for the patent, took that money, invested it in the stock market, and enlarged his fortune to the point where he was worth something over $100 million in current terms, and he became known as a stock prognosticator. Uh, on October 15, 1929, he was speaking to a, a dinner audience in New York City, as reported by the New York Times. That's how uh, famous he was. They sent reporters. Uh, and he told the audience stock prices had reached, quote, what looks like a permanently high plateau. <laughs> uh, he agreed with the other speaker who was Roger Babson, who was more uh, pessimistic, he said, the market may be at its peak now and for several months to come, but I do not feel there will soon, if ever, be a 50 or 60 point break from the present levels. Well, of course, he was wrong. Two weeks later, the market crashed. Fisher personally was wiped out. He had borrowed heavily to uh, speculate. He had to sell his home in New Haven and move in with his sister-in-law. Uh, he had nowhere else to live. 
So this is a puzzle. Uh, why did the market crash? Why did the economy turn down? The, the downturn actually took place before. I mean, the, the peak of the expansion is before, the downturn is before uh, the stock market crashed. But was there something about the, the boom, the roaring 20s, that destined it not to last? So some reason it had to come to an end. Well, that's the view that Mises and Hayek pursue, so segue to uh, their theory and its reception by other economists. Uh, chapter four moves forward to uh, the early 1930s and the New Deal. It's the New Deal and the roots of the New Deal in institutionalist economics, uh, which have not often been uh, emphasized. So it begins with uh, Rexford G. Tugwell uh, sitting in a marble-clad lobby in Rome, Italy in October of 1934 this is a little bit unfair to Tugwell to pick out this episode, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> he wrote about it in his diary. Uh, Tugwell was a Columbia University economist, uh, schooled in institutionalist thinking, who became a key policy advisor to President Roosevelt. He was a member of the famous Brain Trust. And he was the chief architect of two central New Deal policies, the National Industrial Recovery Act, which created the NRA, uh, and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which created the AAA. Uh, in 1934, Tugwell was a senior official in the Department of Agriculture, and he was waiting in Rome, of course, to meet Mussolini. Uh, Tugwell had been following uh, Mussolini's policy experiments with great interest. He saw some things in them that he thought were worth emulating. In his diary, he wrote that Mussolini was, quote, doing many of the things which seemed to be necessary and was the cleanest, neatest, most efficiently operating piece of social machinery I've ever seen. It makes me envious. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm not saying that, that, uh, that fascism explains the New Deal, but it is true that a lot of uh, progressives at the time thought that fascism at least had some attractive features but I go into then much more detail about the other sources of ideas that went into Tugwell's thinking from institutionalist economics and institutionalist economics drawing its ideas from the German historical school uh, and how those ideas got molded into the New Deal. But of course, the, <clears throat> those pro uh, programs did not end the Great Depression. The Great Depression continues, so in 1936, uh, Keynes writes his general theory. The next chapter deals with that begins with Keynes writing a letter to George Bernard Shaw. Uh, George Bernard Shaw was something of a, I would say, amateur economist, except that he was quite a prolific amateur economist. He wrote more words as an economist than he did as a playwright, uh, for which he was more famous. Uh, I'll talk about him more in a minute. Uh, Keynes writes to Shaw, to understand my state of mind, you have to know that I believe myself to be writing a book on economic theory which will largely revolutionize not, I suppose, at once, but in the course of the next 10 years, the way the world thinks about economic problems. Not modest, but as it turned out, not an exaggeration. Uh, it did revolutionize the way the profession thought about macroeconomic policy. This, of course, was uh, famously confirmed when Time magazine ran a cover in 1965 with the declaration, we're all Keynesians now. And, of course, when Richard Nixon, a few years later, told an interviewer, I am now a Keynesian in economics. That's, of course, because he was running deficits. Um, but I go into a much uh, more detailed discussion of where Keynes got the ideas that went into his diagnosis of the Great Depression and 
thereby into the uh, general theory and into how Keynesian economics evolved from that point. Uh, chapter 6, kind of as a counterpoint, deals with Hayek's The Road to Serfdom uh, and the setting of the Second World War. And the, the vignette it begins with uh, is in the spring of 1933, where two German SS agents come knocking at the door of the German economist Wilhelm Repke. Uh, the SS, of course, was Hitler's paramilitary elite. Repke later recalled in his memoir that these men were, quote, of thorough bruiser type. At least that's the way it was translated. Uh, Repke was a classical liberal. He'd been giving anti-Nazi speeches, and the SS was there to suggest to him that he should stop doing that. He had already been dismissed from his teaching post uh, at Marburg University. And the idea was, if you stop denouncing the Nazis, you can have your job back. And Repke reports that uh, when they told him that, he rebuked them with, quote, scorn and indignation and ushered them out of his apartment. And afterward, when he closed the door, he said, I realized I had to leave the country. <laughs> uh, and he did, and he spent the rest of the war uh, in Istanbul. So segue from that to the wartime centralization, uh, not only of the German economy, but of the British and U.S. economies. Uh, and Hayek's road to serfdom as a response to that and a warning about that. Uh, Chapter 7 deals with post-war British socialism and the Fabian Society. So after the war, uh, uh, Churchill is not elected to lead the economy in peace. Clement Attlee uh, and the British Labor Party win the parliamentary elections in 1945. Uh, the anecdote I begin with is, uh, involves Harold Lasky, who was a theoretician for the party and a leading socialist intellectual, taught at the LSE, was a colleague of Hayek's. Uh, a series of newspaper stories had reported speeches Lasky had made saying favorable things about the Soviet Union and even about Stalin's government. And Attlee, of course, didn't want to see this. He wanted you know, to capture the median voter, uh, not the far-left voter. He already had the far-left voter. So uh, Attlee writes Lasky a note in private telling him, quote, a period of silence on your part would be welcome. After he wins the election, Attlee makes it very clear that he's going to be in charge, not uh, people like Professor Lasky. Uh, he's going to make the policy. And the New York Times reported on this statement with the very droll headline, Britain not ruled by intellectuals. <laughs> uh, segue from there to where Lasky got his ideas, which was with the Fabian Society, George Bernard Shaw, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, and the ideas that they had been promulgating since... Uh, the late 19th century uh, to nationalize industries and enlarge the welfare state. So they were uh, socialists, but they were not Marxian socialists. They were Fabian socialists, meaning very gradualist, do whatever we can uh, when, when the opportunity arises. Uh, as a counterpoint to that, Chapter 8 uh, deals with the Mont Pelerin Society and the rebirth of Smithian economics, uh, and so it begins with the first meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society uh, on the north shore of Lake Geneva in April 1947. And there, a German economist named Walter Eucken, who, had, unlike Repke, had actually spent the war in Germany despite being an, an enemy of the state. Uh, in this town in Switzerland, uh, Eucken is sitting on a bench 
eating an orange, and he's really, really enjoying the orange. And a couple of people who observed this have written about it, George Stigler in particular, in his uh, reminiscences of this meeting. And why was Eucken really, really enjoying the orange? Because he had spent the war in Germany where central planning did not make oranges available, at least not to anybody outside the elite. And this was the first orange he'd had in many, many years. And of course, it was his first time outside Germany in many years. He almost wasn't allowed to get out by the uh, occupation authorities. But he was there to attend the first meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society, which was three dozen classical liberal academics uh, and journalists uh, who were trying to sort of rally the troops uh, of the remaining people, classical liberals who didn't believe in uh, central control of the economy. And the rest of the chapter talks about where these ideas came from, from Adam Smith to Karl Menger to uh, Hayek. Chapter 9 and 10 also kind of make a pair. Chapter 9 is about the post-war German wonder economy. And it begins with a telephone ringing in the office of Ludwig Erhard, uh, who is a third German economist and classical liberal, who quite fortuitously ends up as director of the occupation administration uh, in the U.S. and U.K. occupied buy zone, it was called. So the phone is ringing in, Eucken, uh, in sorry, Earhart's office, and at the other end of the line is the American military commander, General Lucius Clay, who's in charge of this uh, zone. Uh, Earhart was already scheduled to give a speech announcing the introduction of a new currency, uh, the Deutsche Mark, to replace the old Reichsmark uh, that had sort of lost any, most of its value during the war. But Clay's office had learned that Erhard was going to make more than that announcement. He was going to announce the end of price controls and rationing, that the rationing system and price controls that the Nazis had instituted during the war and which the occupation authorities had continued. Uh, so when Erhard comes on the line, General Clay says to him, Professor Erhard, my advisors tell me that you're making a big mistake. And Erhard responds, well, don't worry. My advisors tell me the same thing. Uh, but Erhard believed uh, that this was the way to go, uh, despite the criticism of John Kenneth Galbraith, who was on the scene as a representative of the U.S. State Department, who said decontrol will never work. Uh, the decontrol went ahead. Germany's post-war economic recovery uh, began. And the rest of the chapter talks about the ideas uh, in Germany known as ordo-liberalism, which is kind of a German variant of classical liberalism uh, that inspired Erhard. Chapter 10 deals with a country that went the other way, didn't embrace market reforms, but anti-market reforms. Uh, so it's about India, Indian planning and development economics. Uh, in the second edition, it's going to be subtitled Tyler Cowen's favorite chapter. Uh, it begins in 1958 when the uh, economist that Jim mentioned, Peter Bauer, visits India. And Bauer <coughs> uh, wants to meet an Indian economist named B.R. Shinoy. And he wants to meet Shinoy because in 55, the Indian government had recruited a panel of economists to give them feedback on their second five-year plan. The first five-year plan was pretty modest. The second five-year plan was kind of a full-dress attempt to plan the, uh, at least the investment sector of the economy, not by nationalizing everything, but by having government decide where investment would go. Uh, and Shinoy was, uh, of the 21 economists on this panel, Shinoy was the only one to dissent. The other 20 wrote a memorandum saying, great idea, 
And Chinoy wrote something that came to be known as the note of dissent, saying bad idea. Uh, so that was a bit of an annoyance to uh, Nehru, who was the prime minister, and this was his uh, effort, and to his uh, chief advisor, whose name was Mahalanobis. And it was an annoyance to the development officials from uh, Western countries who supported this effort, including, again, John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, but Bauer didn't think much of the plan, and so he wanted to meet Chinoy. He went to the uh, British High Commission and asked them whether they were in any contact with Chinoy. And the response he got was, uh, people here are too busy to have time for acknowledged madmen, <laughs> which sort of tells you how far outside the, the consensus uh, Bauer and Chinoy were at that time. But uh, later events showed that their concerns were justified. and. Uh, I talk quite a bit in the chapter about Jagdish Bhagwati, who was initially an enthusiastic planner, but was willing to face the facts that it wasn't working and sort of came around and helped swing much of the rest of uh, the Indian economics profession uh, toward the view that more markets and less planning uh, would help. Uh, so I talk about the stagnation that took place under the, what was called the permit Raj. You had to get a permit to do anything. Uh, and how the economy only turned around when decontrol began uh, in the 1980s. Uh, 11 and 12 deal with monetary economics, 11 with uh, Bretton Woods <clears throat> in international monetary arrangements. Uh, and it begins with John Maynard Keynes at a press conference, and I have the exact time. It was 3 p.m. on the 6th of July, 1944. Harry Dexter White, the head of the American delegation, was having a press briefing, as he did every day to sell the idea of Bretton Woods to the American public, basically. And Keynes was joining him, uh, and the reporters were quite eager to see Keynes because he was very famous. He was a rock star, you might say. Uh, Keynes's view, of course, was we need something that's not the gold standard. Uh, the gold standard he had already written years ago is a barbarous relic in Keynes's view. And this is a footnote, but it's my favorite footnote in the book, so forgive me. Uh, this phrase by Keynes, barbarous relic, probably unconsciously uh, twists around a statement made by Edwin Cannon, who is a well-known English economist, editor of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Cannon was a supporter of a modern gold standard, and he criticized policies in countries that obstructed banks from issuing banknotes, uh, which left people with what Cannon called that relic of barbarism, a metallic currency for large sums. So he was a support, supporter of the gold standard, but also a supporter of letting people economize on gold and carry more convenient kinds of money. Very different message. Uh, at this co press conference, Keynes thinks, uh, expresses the view that the gold standard is kind of a tyrant. It should no longer exercise what he called tyrannical powers over the world. It should uh, the work of the Bretton Woods Conference was to limit the role of gold to, quote, a monarch subject to constitutional limitations, unquote. And that's kind of an upside-down way of thinking about it if instead you think about the gold standard as a constitutional constraint uh, on monetary and fiscal policies. So I go into a long discussion of the history of the gold standard and economists' views about it uh, and why, with the advent of Keynesian economics, it became less popular. After Bretton Woods ends, of course... Uh, we're in the 1970s. It ends in 1971. So chapter 12 deals with the great inflation and monetarism that arise thereafter. 
The anecdote it begins with is Milton Friedman praising the appointment of Arthur Burns as head of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, Burns had been Friedman's former college professor and mentor, and so Friedman applauds the appointment and says he hopes that Burns will control money growth, uh, keep it low enough to avoid inflation. But almost immediately, Burns uh, begins blaming inflation on everything other than money growth. He blames it on all kinds of cost push factors beyond the central bank's control. And we would like to control it, but the Phillips curve isn't staying put, so the economy's not working the way it's supposed to. Uh, Friedman, of course, had famous already blown up the Phillips curve in his 1968 presidential address to the American Economics Association. So Friedman is forced to write sharply worded letters to Burns, uh, criticizing his arguments and his policy proposals. And by all accounts, they were never really good friends again. Uh, but I talk about the great inflation and how monetarism came to the fore because Keynesian economics didn't have an explanation for it. Chapter 13 covers uh, something that needs at least a book of its own, which is the growth of government. Uh, and it does so by contrasting the public goods theory of government with the public choice theory of government. Uh, so kind of an optimistic and a pessimistic view, uh, or if you like, a naive and a cynical view. <laughs> Uh, and it begins with a famous dinner party in which Ronald Coase is uh, invited to Aaron Director's house in Chicago to defend a, a certain proposition that was in a paper he wrote in 1959 on the Federal Communications Commission. But the proposition uh, is now known as the Coase Theorem, and everybody at Chicago was convinced that it was wrong. Coase wasn't teaching in Chicago at that time. He was teaching in Virginia. So they had a dinner party, and they had a debate, and uh, Coase won. So the vote went from 20 against to 1, meaning Coase, to 21 to 0. So everybody came to Coase's side. Stigler later said that uh, he wished he had taped it. Uh, and Coase recalled, it was kind of grueling for me, but uh, Milton Friedman led the uh, argument against me. And an argument with Milton Friedman, quoting him now, is a pretty strenuous affair. He's very good. He's very fair, but he doesn't let you slip up on anything. At the end of whatever time was, say an hour, I found I was still standing. I knew I'd won. Because if Friedman can't knock you out in a few rounds, you're home. <laughs> Afterward, Aaron Director asked Coase to write up the argument uh, in more detail. Director then published it in 1960 in his journal, the Journal of Law and Economics. The article uh, was entitled The Problem of Social Choice, sorry, Social Cost, The Problem of Social Cost. And today it's the most cited article uh, in economics. Uh, I believe. Uh, so I talk about the public uh, goods problem, its rationale uh, as uh, for the growth of government, and later the public choice alternative to that point of view. I'm, I'm wrapping up. Uh, chapter 14 deals with free trade and protectionism. The anecdote here is Milton Friedman testifying before something called the U.S. Trade Deficit Review Commission, in 1999, and he comes to the hearing wearing an Adam Smith necktie. And one of the commissioners says, I see you're wearing an Adam Smith necktie. How do you think Adam Smith would have felt about the WTO? <laughs> and Friedman uh, doesn't directly say what he thinks Adam Smith would have said, but he said, in my opinion, the best po policy we can follow is to unilaterally remove our restrictions on trade. That is, not try to negotiate these big cumbersome agreements like the WTO. 
That's been a very counterintuitive notion, certainly to the public, but even to the economics profession. Uh, so I go into the case that Adam Smith made for that proposition uh, and the case made against it, and most, uh, most importantly, the infant industry argument. And finally, Chapter 15 tries to bring us up to the present under the title, From Pleasant Deficit Spending to Unpleasant Sovereign Debt Crises. Uh, so it begins actually at the Cato Monetary Conference uh, in November 2010 when George Tavlis from the Bank of Greece stands up and says to the audience in what used to be this room, <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure to be in the United States again, which more than ever feels like being at home. <laughs> and as, just as now, there was sort of some nervous laughter <laughs> to make sure nobody missed what he was talking about. Tavlis said, of course, I mean that your deficits uh, remind me of Greece's. Uh, Greece has, of course, sprinted ahead, but uh, if you, I, I do a calculation that uh, at the time of the Greek debt crisis, when the interest rates spiked up, Greece's ratio of debt to GDP was about 113%. So if present trends continue, we're about six years behind. Uh, so I go on to discuss when deficits used to be pleasant, uh, the, Keynesian, the fiscal Keynesian doctrine due to Alvin Hansen more than anybody else, uh, that deficit spending, spending is usually not only pleasant but better than a free lunch because it only uses unemployed resources and it pays a dividend on them. Right, so the multiplier is more than one. I talk about Buchanan and Wagner's critique of that, that in fact deficits do have a burden that comes with them. Uh, I talk about the idea of Ricardian equivalence. That's pretty technical. Uh, and then the, uh, the notion of unpleasant monetarist arithmetic, which uh, Sargent and Wallace developed in the 1980s and were thought to be sort of crazy to talk about a world in which Deficits just keep mounting to the point where you can't borrow enough money and you're forced to print money to get out of the problem. It doesn't look so far-fetched uh, today. So thank you very much. Great to be here, and I want to congratulate Larry on, on writing this wonderful book. The biggest challenge in writing about something as big as the um, invention of modern economics, of course, is figuring out what the narrative is, turning it into a story so that readers can are drawn in and can follow along. And having faced Larry recently in a debate, <laughs> I should have known um, what a great solution uh, he found, and that is to treat the history of the last 100 years of economic ideas as a um, by an intense and fascinating um, and series of arguments, a long conversation between uh, people who have very different views and are um, ready to uh, go at it hammer and tongs. And it's, it's a great device, and it, um, um, it really, he really captures the excitement and 
by um, and also what's at stake. Okay, because in as this conversation is going on about what's possible and what works and what doesn't work, um, there's also um, the participants are also uh, looking out and seeing the results of various experiments and that changes the questions they're asking and in some cases it changes their actual conclusions. Now, what is at stake? In other, wor in other words, just to back off and ask, okay, so why does all this matter? And Larry says it does, he quotes Hayek and he quotes Keynes who of course are two of the towering intellectuals of the last century who believe that ideas are terribly important. And in particular, they believe that ideas move markets. Keynes was a great psychologist of the market and Hayek um, is a great uh, theorist of, of the information economy. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that the modern economy whose distinctive feature is the unprecedented rise in living standards and modern economics came into being at the same time, that is in mid 19th century England. And of course, if you look at the handout, you can see what the extraordinary track record has been. That in less than 200 years, the bottom nine-tenths of humanity go from living like livestock to actually having lives. From, uh, li from lifespans of 30-some years to lifespans that are inching towards a century. So that's what's at stake. And what, what shows us that ideas had anything to do with this? Wasn't it technology? Wasn't it globalization? Well, alongside the stunning increase in living standards is a second stunning fact that was uh, that Joseph Schumpeter focused on and that is the stunning differences in economic performance between countries and if you look at there's a chart that in your handout that shows and this is just for a recent period the range in the average growth in living standards every year between countries. And, and you have some countries that are growing 7% a year and some countries that are where living standards are, are falling that fast a year. And what does that say? It says that nations make their own destinies. And how do they do that? Because they have different ideas different ideas about 
what works and what doesn't. And if you need another example, if you look at China, which between the 14th century, the 14th and 15th century, when the Chinese had virtually a monopoly on advanced technology because they had invented everything, but those inventions never affected the standard of living. And 1970, there's almost no increase in the average standard of living. And then it, from one year to the next, China has a rocket-like upward traje trajectory. Now, there wasn't time for to re-educate the workforce. There weren't any new resources, the same population, the same, the same structures. What happened? They stopped, um, they stopped uh, killing the entrepreneurs. They stopped making scientists shovel um, um, manure. They stopped criminalizing enterprise. That's the power of ideas. And, and ideas as, as, um, as implemented by, by policymakers. Now, I think that, um, I think that Keynes and Hayek are very, very great figures, but I also, but I do have a reservation about framing, uh, the policy debates that Larry so brilliantly lays out and tells us, um, you know, what worked in the real world and what didn't, and who and who is right, only in, in terms of this binary um, opposition between more government and more market, as if. If you just move along this um, um, this plane, that if you move in one direction, if you happen to be a big government person, you move in the big government direction, economic performance is going to go up. Or if you happen to be a uh, Hayekian, if you mo move in the market direction, um, uh, economic performance will go up. Because if you look at if you look at the data on the growth of living standards and productivity, it doesn't look as if there's a very tight correlation. In other words, in other words, the, think about the two best performing stock markets in the last hundred years. The two countries with the fastest rate of productivity growth. What are they? They're the United States and Sweden. Sweden has a government that's almost 50% of GDP. The US has a relatively small government. And yet, so that suggests perhaps that, that the size of government is not the, not the only or maybe not the only, the most important variable. Because if you think about what Sweden and the United States, and in fact, 
have in common, what changed in China from one year to the next, what was it? It was the environment for business and entrepreneurs. So I think that, um, that um, I'll end by congratulating Larry again. Uh, it's a wonderful book that really um, captures what is at stake, how much difference it makes, and also reminds us that, that yes, these debates are keep coming around uh, right now. The Great Recession has uh, revived the uh, standard of living debate. Um, and at the same time, we do learn some things from our experiences. We do learn some lessons. Thank you. I thought I'd give uh, Larry a chance to uh, make a few comments on what Sylvia said, and then let Sylvia come back again for a few minutes, then we'll open up for general questions. So. OK. <clears throat> Well, I don't have a lot to uh, disagree with. <laughs> um, I do have a footnote about Sweden, uh, which I want to mention, which is to say that uh, in the terms of the socialist calculation debate, where socialism means state ownership of the means of production, that was the traditional definition, that's what Mises and Hayek were saying wouldn't work, uh, Sweden's not a socialist country. Sweden is a capitalist country with a large welfare state. And in fact, Sweden actually pursues fairly business-friendly policies apart from the personal income tax. So regulation is fairly sensible. Uh, it's not, doesn't have a tort crisis the way the United States does. Um, it has free trade and it has actually low business taxes. Uh, and those sorts of things I think help explain Sweden and, and many of the other countries in Scandinavia doing so well. Uh, but it's true. I don't go into uh, all those kinds of nuances. Uh, and I, I, it is a sort of debate where I've got two sides in most chapters, where, of course, there are often third and fourth sides, uh, which end up, if, they get, if they're mentioned, I mention them in footnotes or in asides. But uh, so I, I take that as a useful criticism. And, Anybody who wants to uh, teach from the book, uh, of course, is free to add <laughs> additional points of view. Um, OK, I have a story about the Swedish finance minister. Um, I was just in Italy at a meeting of about 20 people, a two-day meeting about the, uh, the new growth paradigm. And the basic question was, is economic growth no longer benefiting the bottom 90%. Has something happened, OK? So about half of the people there were finance ministers, including Anders of Sweden. And as the conversation went on, I, of course, had been out of things for about 10 years because I was writing my book. And um, all of a sudden, I, I, kept, I heard all these terms like, uh, inequality, industrial policy, et cetera. It sounded like, you know, when I got to the Times in the 1990s, and um, 
finally, Anders, the Swedish finance minister, uh, kind of uh, perks up and says, industrial policy? Let's see. Sweden has tried a lot of industrial policy. We've tried many, many variants of it. And in my government, we, tr we looked at what worked and what didn't. And what, what did we find? It never worked. It never worked. So I asked him, how come you didn't save Saab? We, we bailed out GM. And he said, why would I give Saab money? I could have given them 500 million euros, and it, they would have lost it in, in two months. I'd rather spend the money on daycare centers. OK, so the former finance minister of Chile, who's actually running for president, says, daycare centers. Let's see, my administration spent a tremendous amount of money building a network of daycare centers, and nobody came. <laughs> so the, um, their, um, their, the conclusion they drew is the devil is often in the details. So. I believe in Sweden they actually have vouchers for daycare, not state-provided daycare. <laughs> uh, uh. Okay, well, I guess we can open it up for questions. We've got about half hour or so. Um, there'll be a mic coming around. Uh, if you're going to ask a question, please just ask a question, not give a speech. And uh, give us your name and affiliation, please, and direct, direct the question to uh, either one or the other of the speakers. Thank you. I'll let you guys call. Yeah. Hard to see out there with these David? lights. David? Yeah. <laughs> I am David Bowes with Cato. Both of your books are about the clash of economic ideas, whether that's the title or not, and some of the ideas that clash we see again and again, certainly some of the uh, ideas that clashed in the 30s we see again today. What I'd like to ask is, other than maybe the labor theory of value, are there bad economic ideas that have lost these debates and are no longer advanced, and in particular, are there bad economic policy ideas that nobody advances today that they used to? Well, I think uh, comprehensive central planning is an idea that's pretty much dead and buried. There's a lot of piecemeal uh, pleading for save my country, uh, sorry, save my company, but the idea of getting experts in a room with a big computer and feeding it equations as a way of deciding prices and quantities, nobody subscribes to that anymore. So fortunately, that's gone down the tube. I used to think uh, five years ago that Keynesian fiscal policy had disappeared, but I was wrong about that. Uh, so that's made a comeback. So it's hard to say when an idea is permanently dead and buried, but I think comprehensive central planning uh, nobody subscribes to today. Except that there are politicians who seem to have a learning disability or eight, um, uh, like the Argent 
Argentine president who is national, talking about nationalizing the oil company, or of course our friend Hugo Chavez, who has managed to take one of the free, most democratic and uh, you know, um, highest income um, Latin American countries and uh, you know, steadily impoverish it and make it uh, very undemocratic. So I think that I think that everything that he's doing is almost a um, a tableau of bad things. You know how to screw up your economy. Um, I was going to say that the other the other uh, idea that um, that um, has pretty much bitten the dust is the idea of, of um, uh, sort of oppressing or eradicating or discouraging the business person entrepreneur. I think that um, uh, not everybody, not everybody is, is creating a more favorable business environment, but Certainly, compared to uh, compared to uh, you know 50 years ago, there's been a radical change in the understanding that it's businesses that raise productivity and therefore are in the business of not just making money for themselves, but of raising average living standards. I think that there is a much, much wider appreciation of that. And that was, that was Marshall's great contribution. In the front. Uh, my name is George Lawrence. I'm representing no one other than myself. Um, quick comment and then a, and a question. Your point of, of the attractiveness of some aspects of fascism reminds me very much in the late 30s people, it became a cliche that Mussolini made the trains run on time. Right. right. Uh, I wonder whether you, either of you, uh, have, have thought of uh, a more powerful statistical model. I mean, this is really, forgive me, a, a little bit simple-minded. Uh, what about taking account of a variety of other relevant variables, such as geography, natural resources, degree of democracy versus so forth and so on, try to build through maybe a factor analytic approach or multidimensional scaling, a, a, a more powerful mathematical uh, uh, basis for you, post-diction and maybe even pre-diction? Well, that's not really in my skill set. Uh, but there are economists who do that sort of thing, run multi-country regressions with lots of variables and try to figure out what promotes growth and what doesn't. Robert Barrow, for example, uh, Robert Lucas, Paul Romer, uh, and there's been a lot of uh, the Darren Asimoglu. Uh, I think there's been some advances made in that literature. Uh, and one of the most important conclusions has been that it's a little hard to put a scalar variable on it, but the rule of law matters, institutions matter. Uh, so there is, a, there is a lot of work that's been done on that. I think you get a better explanation of why some countries grow rich and others haven't than we used to have back when we thought it was just capital accumulation. 
Not not the size of government, as Sylvia said, but the policies of government do matter. I mean, it matters whether the size of the government budget is mostly writing checks to people to spend on their own or the government investing it into money-losing enterprises. Doesn't small business provide the net new jobs for an economy versus big business? Uh, I think so, <laughs> but well, I'm not an expert on that. I, I once did a, uh, a front page story about that for the New York Times, and it turns out that um, small businesses create a you know, in a sort of gross sense, a tremendous amount of jobs, but they uh, destroy a lot of jobs too because they because so many small businesses go out of business. So it's it's not that useful a dichotomy. It's not that useful a dichotomy, and it's a little bit analogous to um, the dichotomy that people used to draw between the comp you know, the, the companies that make big breakthroughs, which Schumpeter insisted was the, the lone entrepreneur versus the, you know, the, the ones that made, the big companies that made incremental changes. It turns out that both are sort of vital in raising productivity and living standards. So I think that, um, as I said, I think the dichotomy is kind of false. Samar Chatterjee from uh, Safe Foundation. Um, you know, I've been uh, associated with economics. Uh, uh, my background is not economics, but I'm an engineer scientist. Uh, from 1960, I've been associated with engineering economics and watching how the economists operate and various economic theories and so on. And it gives, uh, my understanding of economics is it is more like voodoo science. <laughs> um, and given that, and in fact, uh, Mr. Reagan, during Reagan's period, it became more confirmed when he called it Reaganomics, and the whole country was also excited about Re Reaganomics. And here comes George Bush, his running, to, running mate to be, calls it a voodoo economics, given that, that my, why write a history of a voodoo science? How useful is it, and why study it even? <laughs> well, can I just say something? Well, let's look at, let's contrast the performance of countries that uh, took advantage of these thinkers that uh, who Larry writes about, uh, you know, Marshall, Keynes, uh, Hayek, Friedman, and those countries that said these are, you know, colonialists or they're imperialists or they're you know, running dog capitalists, okay? Let's look at the difference in the economic performance. And I think you will see there is actually a chart in the handout that compares 
countries in um, uh, around 1990, at the end, you know, when the Soviet Union broke up, countries that have similar geographies, similar size, similar resources, et cetera, et cetera. And you will see a radical difference that one set of countries uh, which did not use what you know, people disparagingly call the dismal science um, uh, did a lot worse. Okay, in, in fact, the, their economies stagnated while, while the West, with all its variations, all its recessions, all of its imperfections, shot up. Okay, so, and in fact, the performance okay, of the West has been better in the post-World War II period, okay, than even the period before World War I, which was the other golden age of growth. Yep. So, they know, so, so they know something. There's something valuable, I would argue. Uh, no, no, China and, and India and Russia have, to differing degrees, have all liberalized their economies. Okay, but it, it's not inspired by socialism. Um, let, let me talk about the, this phrase, voodoo economics, that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, famously used. I talk about it in my chapter on the growth of government, because there's a, a movement known as supply-side economics, of course, uh, sometimes called Reaganomics. And what uh, Bush was specifically reacting to was the claim that you can cut tax rates and revenue will grow, that you, it sounded like you can eat your cake and have it too. Uh, and it's, it's an empirical question. There are cases in which if you cut tax rates, revenue goes up, but they're pretty rare. Usually when you cut tax rates, revenue goes down. And so it's very convenient or uh, for people who want to cut taxes to claim it's not going to cost anything, it's not going to reduce spending, but that's usually wishful thinking. Uh, but I mean, there have been cases when, when Reagan cut tax rates throughout the uh, scale, uh, tax payments by people in the highest brackets actually went up. In lower brackets, they went down, and overall, tax revenue went down. All right? So it didn't pay for itself entirely. But the, not all the Republicans who advocated those tax cuts claimed that it would pay for itself. And in fact, I quote Bill Niskanen on this. He said we ne he was on the Council of Economic Advisors in Reagan administration. He said, we never thought it was going to make tax revenue go up. We were in favor of it anyway because it would make economic growth go up and it would leave people with more of their own money to spend. And the other example is actually the JFK tax cut that LBJ uh, got, uh, got passed of, of 1963. And in that case, um, I mean, what JFK was, trying to do, was facing was a big deficit and very slow growth. And um, 
the, the Keynesians on his council convinced him to take a risk and, and uh, cut taxes. And in that case, growth increased, the deficits actually went down. Gentleman here. Thank you for a, an interesting uh, discussion, um, Ken Watson, IMF. Um, one interesting thing about it for me is the last presentation I came to here at the Cato Institute was by Darren Asimoglu on his book, um, Why, Why Nations, Nations Fail. He essentially argued exactly the opposite to your point of view today. That is, he essentially argued that ideas don't matter that uh, the differences that uh, <coughs> were, uh, Madame Nasa pointed out, um, about differences in uh, economic performance have very little to do with ideas <coughs> and almost everything to do with uh, what he called extractive elites. <laughs> and in fact, he argued, in essence, that um, the adoption of some economic ideas, in particular, highly centralized authoritarian directive economics had almost nothing to do with the merits of the idea and um, a lot to do with the fact that extractive elites uh, um, very quickly realized that this kind of economy uh, was very good for them, whether it was very good for the uh, economy broadly, another question. So um, that the contrast between the, the view that you put forward today and Asimoglu's view um, is quite stark, and I find it uh, quite interesting. Perhaps you'd like to comment further on it? Well, I, I haven't read his book, but from the title, if his focus is on why nations fail, then I'm quite prepared to believe that nations fail when they pay no attention to good ideas, but simply serve the interests of a ruling elite. I'm quite prepared to believe that. Uh, but better ideas would constrain the ability of the ruling elite uh, to live at the expense of everybody else. So, I mean, I mean, there are cases, and I talk about in my book, where the policy was already in place and the rationalization was adopted after the fact. Uh, and so ideas didn't really matter to that policy. But I think there are a lot of cases where ideas have mattered and the policies adopted have had consequences for good or for ill. I don't see... If that were true, I mean, if, that, if you could generalize that, if you could really universalize that, that point, then why is it that Britain was the great 19th century power and not Spain? Or why um, Japan and not mainland, and Taiwan, which was the most pathetic, um, Lee endowed little ex-colony and not mainland China. Why in the back? Before 1970. Uh, Mike Kurtzig, uh, formerly with the Department of Agriculture. I think one of the most interesting things that you haven't mentioned is education. And those countries who educate their people advance with good ideas, those they, they innovate. Uh, take a look at Israel, which is a prime example of innovation. 
take a look at China, which is a prime example of replication. And uh, although they have done well, they're running into problems now. So I, what do you say about the fact that if you don't innovate, if you don't educate, you're likely to have the, have the same pr the problem that was mentioned before in that book, Why Nations Fail? Um, the United States, except in college education, where we were about a generation ahead of everybody else by World War II, has never uh, had the best education system. And yet it's had the most rapid productivity growth. Now, I think, see, I don't think we're talking about, about is education a good thing or not? Is it the decisive thing? I think if you look at what countries succeed, then what is more decisive is, is it a place where educated people want to go and where they can thrive? Because the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe had a very, very fine uh, education system. In fact, um, a few years ago, I walked around St. Petersburg with Grigory Perlman, who uh, solved the Poincaré conjecture. I spent all day with him. He was a mathematician, but he could quote poetry. He knew every building. He could tell the history of every dynasty. You know, very wonderful Russian education. But, but what could mathematicians do with it in Russia under communism? No, but if they, when they immigrated to the United States, they could, you know. So I think that it's the environment because maybe you don't, make, maybe you don't um, um, educate those mathematicians here, but mathematicians from elsewhere will come. And I think that the same is, I think that explains why Israel is such a success in a sea of general failure. Oh, if I, I just add a little to that. Um, in, in the chapter on India, I, I uh, quote at uh, some length an article by Swami Nathan Iyer, who's here, about the same story in India. Uh, the, the title of the article was Why Indians Succeed and India Fails. Right, So... Indian expatriates have done quite well uh, in countries where the institutional environment allows them uh, to rise on their merits and not so well under the permit, Raj, yeah. where it's all about pull. Roger? Thank you. Uh, Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Uh, Larry, I wonder, uh, after what you learned from writing this book, if you would care to comment on the contrast between France and China uh, with respect to... Which the, century? Uh, the, right, at the moment. Uh, with respect to the relationship between political freedom and economic freedom. Um, we've just had an election in France, which is going to result, we're told, in a 75% income tax. They've got political freedom and it looks like they're going to move into less economic freedom. In China, by contrast, we have a booming economy with very little political freedom, but substantial economic freedom. 
And that is something of a, of a puzzle because we tend to think that political freedom and economic freedom go together. And so if you could, maybe, maybe uh, you would have some thoughts on the contrast between those two experiments, as it were. Uh, well, it is something of a puzzle. Um, it was a, f- uh, a French thinker, Benjamin Constant, who said we need to distinguish between the liberty of the ancients, which is the freedom to participate in elections, and the liberty of the moderns, which is the liberty to be left alone. <laughs> uh, and too often people uh, confuse the two or think that uh, the more things you get to vote on, the freer you are. I, we certainly hope that China will follow the pattern of other countries that as they developed a middle class, the middle class demanded more personal liberty uh, and made its voice heard in, in political life and became uh, freer in the political sense. Uh, in France, I mean, the views of... Uh, the classical liberals are very much in a minority. Uh, and France has sort of become more market-oriented despite socialist rule, but sort of the, the policy hasn't been as bad as the rhetoric. And I don't think uh, Hollande is going to get a 75% tax rate, uh, or if he does, he'll regret it. But that, that was his campaign posturing. Uh, but... I mean, as, as French living standards stagnate, uh, at some point, maybe the French will reawaken to their heritage of classical liberal ideas. I don't know. Well, DSK was at this um, symposium in Italy, and he, of course, hates Hollande uh, almost as much as he hates Sarkozy, and, but he said that uh, he expected virtually no change in economic policy. Larry, I think maybe one more question. Okay. Uh, In the center. He's got a mic. This will have to be our last question. Because we have to eat lunch. Uh, Jeff Gaynor with Council for America. In earlier comments, you indicated there had been a seem to be a consensus that comprehensive central planning is no longer in in vogue at all. But on the other hand, it seems that there is a durability to the notion of governments picking winners and losers in economic game in terms of who they should support. We see this, of course, with President Obama talking about investment in green energy and even investment in teachers. Is Is there any kind of consensus you think has emerged over the years among economists in terms of this question as to whether the government is well-suited to pick these winners and losers in, 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 in uh, development and economics? Uh, not completely a consensus. I think it's generally agreed that it's not a good idea, but there are people who are willing to make exceptions for what they think are firms providing public goods or positive externalities. And so in that sense, the way the debate is couched has changed a little bit. Uh, it's not claimed that the government is wiser than the market, but that in this particular case, uh, the market has a blind spot because these firms are providing benefits to everyone that are not being captured through the price system. Um, But I think it's it's sort of picking winners in the sense of 
picking favorites, I think most economists would agree that that's the job of the venture capital market and not the job of the government. Okay, I guess uh, we're ready to go to lunch, and I want to thank uh, Larry and Sylvia for a very interesting discussion, and thank you for, for all for attending. I'd also like to, again, thank uh, uh, Becky Shaw for help organizing this event. Uh, I hope to see you all back at Cato soon. Um, the luncheon will be in the George M. Yeager uh, dining room, which is on the second level. So you can take this spiral staircase if you want to get some exercise. There's also elevators, and there's uh, restrooms as well. There's some signs for that if you, uh, if you need those. So, again, thank you very much. Uh, and the books are available here. So uh, the authors will be kind enough to sign uh, if you pay them, maybe. Uh, so thanks again. No, we sign for free. <laughs> Buying the book is enough.